I'd like to tell you a story that happened to the poet Naomi Shehab Nye. She writes, I had been wandering around the Albuquerque airport terminal after learning that my flight had been delayed four hours, and I heard an announcement. If anyone in the vicinity of gate A4 understands Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. She writes, well, one pauses these days, and gate A4 was my own gate, and so I went there. And an older woman in full traditional Palestinian embroidered dress, just like my grandmother wore, she was crumpled on the floor and wailing. Help, said the flight agent. Talk to her. What's her problem? We, we told her that the flight was delayed, and then she did this. So I stooped, uh, put my arm around the woman, and I spoke haltingly. Shadawa, Shabitak, Habibti. Stani Shway Min Fadluk, And the minute she heard any words that she knew, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought that the flight had been canceled entirely, and she needed to be in El Paso the next day for a major medical surgery. And I said, No, we're we're fine. You'll get there just late. Who's picking you up? Let's let's call him. So we called her son, and I spoke with him in English, and I told him I would stay with his mother until we got him on the plane, got her on the plane. And she talked to him, and then we called her other sons, just for fun. And then we called my dad, and he spoke to her for a while in Arabic, and of course, they had ten mutual friends. (laughs) And then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets that I know and let them chat with her? And this all took about two hours. She was laughing a lot by then, telling about her life, patting my knee, answering questions. She had pulled a sack of homemade mamul cookies out of her bag, little um, powdered sugary mounds uh, with dates and nuts, and she was offering them to all of the women at the gate. To my amazement, not a single person declined them. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the mom from California, the lovely woman from Laredo, they were all covered in powdered sugar. (laughs) And then the airline broke out free apple juice, and two little girls from our flight ran around serving it, and they were covered in powdered sugar too. And I noticed that my new best friend, we were holding hands now, had a potted plant sticking out of her bag, some medicinal thing, with green furry leaves. Such an old country tradition. Always carry a plant. Always be rooted somewhere. And as I looked around that gate of late and weary ones, I thought, this, this is the world that I want to live in. The shared world. Not a single person at that gate, once the crying of confusion had stopped, seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. And I wanted to hug all those other women, too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. Uh, I begin with this simple story of human connection because the normal, 
everyday lives of the world's 1.6 billion Muslims. There's about 2.1 billion Christians in the world. There's about 1.6 billion Muslims. But their normal everyday average lives often get lost amongst the headlines of the horrifying, reprehensible acts committed by a few. An extensive study of media coverage of Islam showed that in the first decade of the 21st century, stories about Islam related to Muslim militants and Muslim extremists rose from about 2% to about 25%. But the number of stories about average everyday Muslims during that period remained the same, not at 1%, but 0.1%. So as we continue to hear more and more stories about the worst aspects of Islam, we continue to hear almost nothing about the lives of the vast majority of Muslims. As one interfaith leader said, I was giving a talk in Kansas City some years ago, and someone stood up and said, what the heck is wrong with you Muslims? And my response was that the only thing I knew about you people in Kansas City was the first minute of the local news that I watched last night. I would think, what the heck is wrong with you people in Kansas City? If the only thing I know are the murders and the other crimes that I hear about on the evening news, I would have a very skewed perception of who you are. When many Americans hear the word Muslim or Islam, the first association in many cases is something along the lines of Osama bin Laden. Most Americans don't think or even know of Tawakal Karman, who in 2011 became the first Arab woman and the second Muslim woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize for her work as a Yemeni journalist and human rights activist in the Arab uprising, in the Arab Spring. Or Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, who's the first Muslim to become the mayor of a major western city, capital. Um, Sadly, extremists on all sides get covered much more than the huge numbers of moderates in the middle. I'll limit myself just to two among many possible examples. On the extreme Islamophobia side, a few years ago, it was disheartening to witness all the attention given to Terry Jones, a fundamentalist pastor with a congregation of only a handful of members who took it upon himself to try and create international burn a Quran day. Why do we amplify the voices of obscure hate mongers? On the other stride of extreme Islamism, most of you can likely recall a video of a small group of Palestinians celebrating in the streets and burning an American flag after 9-11. Yes, that small group should be condemned, but that clip was replayed and you know, frozen and put on the front of magazines as if it were representative of how all Muslims thought. Here's the missing context. Of the 27 press releases released by major U.S. Muslim organizations that condemned terrorism between 2001 and 2003, two received media attention, two of the 27. One of those two was released the day of 9-11, but it was quickly overshadowed by the coverage of 9-11 generally. In the years since 9-11, there has been regular criticism of moderate Muslims for failing to condemn radical Islam. Here's the problem. Many moderate Muslims regularly have, but no one's paying attention to it, and when it happens, no one remembers. Thomas Friedman, a New York Times columnist, famously called one of the anniversaries of 9-11, famously called out moderate Muslims for failing to condemn 9-11. He forgot that in the, on the 
uh, in addition to the previously mentioned statement on the day of 9-11, the New York Times, his paper, published a full-page ad one month after 9-11 that contained statements from prominent Muslim leaders denouncing the attacks. Three days after the attacks, more than 40 prominent Muslim scholars released a statement saying, we condemn in the strongest terms these incidents which are against all human and Islamic norms. Signatories to that statement, including the General Guide of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and one of the founders of Hamas in Palestine. Hamas, you know, the, the terrorist organization, Hamas. Uh, moreover, according to a Gallup poll, 93% of Muslims in Muslim-majority countries believed the attacks to be unjustified. 93% of Muslims around the world. Tragically, we in the U.S. have squandered much of that goodwill in our extended response to 9-11. Fifteen years later, we are still embroiled in wars in the Middle East, which is continuing to foster resentment in countries whose citizens, as we would too, uh, resent a years-long occupation by foreign soldiers. Now, don't get me wrong. There are legitimate criticisms to be made of fundamentalist Islam, just as there are legitimate criticisms to be made of fundamentalist Christianity, fundamentalist Judaism, fundamentalist Hinduism. I could go on. But Islamophobia is not about legitimate criticism. Islamophobia is about unfounded fear, anxiety, and hostility about Muslims because they are different and other. I'm interested in diffusing Islamophobia, doing whatever small part I can, because Islamophobia is irrational, because it encourages anti-Muslim hate crimes, and because it increases misunderstandings in ways that unnecessarily embolden potential future terrorists. Islamophobia, like homophobia, is playing on that word phobia because it is a, it is a fear that is exaggerated all out of proportion to reality. I, of course, want our government to investigate and help prevent terrorist threats, but I don't want them to do it in an unreasonable, irrational, phobic way that sacrifices our freedom, that sacrifices our civil liberties, and that sacrifices our ability to recognize that the inherent worth and dignity of every person extends and includes, obviously, Muslims. The case of Islamophobia that's gotten the most attention recently is the ban on burkinis in France. So that's the word burqa, the full Islamic head covering or covering, and the word bikini. Of course, it's the opposite of a bikini, but the burkini. Uh, it's a full-body swimsuit for women that maintains modesty standards according to some um, traditions of Islam. As someone who identifies as a feminist, I both think it is sexist when a culture requires women and not men to dress with extreme modesty, and I think women should ultimately have the freedom to dress however they want to dress. And here's the more important point. You can tell that French politicians are acting irrationally and phobically when they begin empowering police to order women on beaches wearing burkinis to take off more of their clothes or be expelled. The only way it can possibly seem like a good idea to have police officers ordering women to take off any layer of clothing is from a warped perspective like Islamophobia, that is fear overriding rationality. Fear takes us from that 
more evolved um, prefrontal cortex part of our brain and takes us right back to our lizard brain, our limbic system, our lizard, our, uh, our brainstem. It's that it moves us from the rational part of our brain to the have sex with it or kill it or run from it part of our brain. All that being said, I strongly support the liberal turn in religion for both Islam and other traditions. Uh, That's not the turn to the Democratic Party. It's the Latin term liber, meaning freedom, the turn toward individual freedom in religion. It means taking religion seriously, but not literally, taking it metaphorically, taking it archetypally. And it means incorporating the insights of 21st century science into our practice of religion and spirituality. And as I seek to reflect on the future of Islam from a more informed, a more rational, and, and what I hope is a less Islamophobic perspective, I, will still, I still think it's important to say, for example, that by summer 2013, it had become evident that the Arab Spring uprisings had failed to produce democracy everywhere except where they began, in Tunisia. Egypt's first democratic government had been overthrown in a military coup that was ostensibly popularly supported. Syria had descended into a brutal and protracted civil war. And Libya Libya has uh, similarly fragmented. It has two um, uh, mutually elected but hostile governments, one in Tripoli and one in Tobruk, while various militias control different sectors of the country. These developments demonstrate that there is no inevitable transition from a popular uprising, even with a youth bulge, even with um, social media. There's no inevitable transition from that to a sustainable uh, political and social movement. And as the cue of ISIS videos indicate, not all tech-savvy youth are pro-democracy. It is also, however, not the case that Islam and democracy are incompatible, despite what uh, misinformed or willfully ignorant Islamophobic pundits sometimes are often claim. After all, the world's third largest democracy, Indonesia, is also the world's largest Muslim country. As I said two years ago in a sermon on the future of Islam, not only are the overwhelming majority of Muslims neither terrorists nor terrorist sympathizers, but also, contrary to popular stereotypes, most Muslims aren't Arab. 20% of Muslims are Arabs. And the countries with the largest Muslim populations, Indonesia, Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, Nigeria, though all five of them are democracies. Along these lines, consider that Saudi Arabia has only the 16th largest Muslim population behind countries such as Uzbekistan, Ethiopia, Turkey, and Iran. Saudi Arabia's Muslim population is roughly equivalent to China's Muslim population. The huge numbers of Muslims outside of the Middle East, as well as the diversity of Islam uh, in the present, give me hope for an increasingly pluralistic and progressive Islam in the future. There are no guarantees, but there are many reasons why it might continue to move in that direction. Here's the even more important twist. Many commentators and politicians claim from this biased Islamophobic perspective that Islam and democracy are incompatible. But one only has to look around the world, from North and West Africa over to Southeast Asia, to see many examples of Muslim-majority countries actively engaged in democracy. 
However, I invite you to consider that this question of whether Islam and democracy is compatible is actually a distraction from the ways that the opposite is actually the case. It is Islamophobia and democracy that are actually incompatible. Islamophobia is a poison on our body politic that is being used in Europe and the U.S. to scapegoat Muslims and other immigrants. The next time that you hear a pundit or a politician scapegoating Muslims or other immigrants, notice the ways that they are doing so in order to fuel nativist, authoritarian politics that empower themselves, the ways they are doing it to undermine your civil liberties and doing it in ways that decrease pluralism, diversity, and tolerance in our country. So yes, terrorism is a threat to our democracy, but all of those things I just named are also serious threats to our freedom and democracy that Islamophobia is fueling. So, In contrast, what might we do to bring about a more hopeful future? On the systemic level, supporting the transition to clean, sustainable energy is not only vital to slowing climate change, it is vital to stopping petrodictators who fuel radical Islam based on money from all of our oil-based cars and our oil-based economy. On the individual level, we can speak out whenever we see Islamophobia happening. We can cultivate interpersonal and interfaith relationships with ourselves and with other people of bringing together Muslims and non-Muslims. We can educate the public about Islam, particularly the diversity of the world's 1.6 billion Muslims and the common ground it shares with the West and other religious traditions. Perhaps the greatest hope that Islamophobia can decrease despite our high level of fear and anxiety about it at the present is the history of anti-Catholic bias and anti-Jewish bias and anti-same-sex marriage sentiment and uh, anti-interracial marriage sentiment. The way that those forms of intolerance and bigotry and prejudice that were so huge at one time and slowly over time have given way to acceptance inclusion and eventually celebration as the scary other became known for the complex and messy human beings that we all are. Do you remember our opening story from the poet uh, Naomi Shihab Nye? Do you remember what opened up as strangers uh, separated by language and culture and in the midst of a highly stressful situation found simple ways to connect and communicate? In Nye's words, I looked around that gate of late and weary ones and thought, this is the world I want to live in, the shared world. And not a single person in that gate, once the crying and confusion had stopped, seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies, and I wanted to hug all those other people, too. This can still happen anywhere, not Everything is lost. The last thing I'll say is that uh, this, the, this particular version of the Quran, the study Quran, is actually a really excellent, relatively new resource published by HarperCollins. So it is a, uh, I do commend that to you. 
And, and regarding the Quran, there's a lot more to say about this, but regarding how one approaches the Quran or the Bible or Buddhist sutras or the Upanishads, uh, that uh, the truth is, and people won't always admit this, but the truth is everyone picks and chooses. Like people sometimes accuse liberals of, oh, you're just picking and choosing. And I'm like, yes, I am. And I'm totally not ashamed of that. And indeed, both you do too, and I commend picking and choosing because with any religious tradition, there are helpful, life-giving, healthy parts, and there are life-negating, sexist, bigoted, homophobic, classist, you know, ableist, other parts that I think rightly should be seen um, as anachronistic and should be left to the wayside. So, what, so I would say both one should pick and choose, and one should choose love. And that to me, it says um, more about you or the committee or the community that you choose to affiliate with if you are regularly lifting up the verses to bash other people or that create division as opposed to lifting up the parts of religious traditions that create love and joy and peace and patience. So because we all pick and choose, if you individually or you as part of the community or part of a community that is choosing hate division, separation, instead of love, joy, and peace, again, that says to me more about you than it does about the book. So I would challenge you as you go into the coming days and weeks, choose love. You have that power. Continue your journey with love. Care for one another and care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. So live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace.